on maynard.com.au Yes, I want to be the pilot That is great. We are overlooking the beautiful Sydney Harbour here. There's a huge Moreton Bay fig tree in front of us that would be, I don't know, 100 years old or so. And someone who's been in the Australian music industry for almost that long, he's been shocking people from London to Paran to King's Cross. He hangs out. You see him shuffling around. You see him running around. You see him fast bowling around. It's Jeff Duff. Hey, how you doing, Maynard? Last time I spoke to you, you were doing Ground Control to Frank Sinatra album. Well, because I had a big band. We were playing Sinatra songs. Yeah. And I had a smaller band that was playing David Bowie songs. A ground control to Major Tom. And I thought I'd combine the both, Sinatra and Bowie. Hey. A ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. And I love the concept that they were booked for different gigs on the same night, but they got them mixed up, so each other had to cover each other's songs. That was a great idea. In fact, it became really, really popular for a short while with American promoters. And they said, can you can you bring the show over to America? We've got some club dates which would really suit that sort of show. In the end, I said, yeah. I said, yeah, let's do it. And they wanted to supply an American band. And then uh, they said, look, we've phoned Sinatra's estate and they don't like the idea of anybody messing with the original uh, Sinatra songs and you've sort of parodied a lot of them so you can't do it. That's life That's life That's what people say You're riding high on April to shut down the Sinatra stayed very strict. And also a friend of mine w- was over there doing a Tom Waits show and Tom Waits slapped the ban on him because they thought, no, there's one Tom Waits, we don't need any tribute Tom Waits over here in America. We are here next to all your cricket trophies. You are a uh, very proficient sportsman, which might surprise a lot of people. You are known for your bowling skills and tennis as well, is it? Tennis, yeah. Yeah, I play, I play competition tennis down here at uh, Rushcutters Bay. And uh, I play cricket for Northbridge Cricket Club. I was just presented with an award for bowling last week here in Sydney, yeah. This beautiful flat you have here, it's a plush flat. You've got lovely memorabilia on the wall, some cracker photos of David Bowie, some fantastic photos of you. What's the oldest photo of yourself you've got on the wall there? Well, those shots of me and Andy Warhol and Paul McCartney, name-dropping, were from 1978 in London. That was Paul McCartney. He invited me to his birthday party in London because I was signed to his publicist as well. It was a bit of a who's who birthday party. The shot with Bill Wyman, the Rolling Stones bass player, was on his private boat in south of France in Cannes. The reason we're talking to you is that some of these stories are ending up in your book. Actually, a guy said to me, Jeffrey, you should put out your autobiography. You've got so many incredible stories. And he, he said, you should call it This Will Explain Everything. So that's what I've done. There is so much all to explain. For people that might not have heard of Jeff Duff, but because you, you know, you're not on The Voice every night of the week or something like that, people go, this Jeff Duff guy, who is it? Who, how could you explain to someone who hasn't heard of you before? We did five shows at the Opera House last year doing this Bowie show. We had three generations of people. So we had grandparents, 
their children and then their children. There's three generations of people getting into our David Bowie show. Current people probably only know me from the David Bowie shows that I'm doing, but I've been recording since 1970 or something like that. Just released my 30th album. Look, I've been around so so far back that I was a regular on Countdown when it first started, ABC's Countdown show with Molly Meldrum, with bands that a lot of people have forgotten probably called Skyhooks. And Sherbet. So I wonder if you're like an Australian Richard O'Brien. Would that be a bad comparison or not? When Rocky Horror first hit Australia in early 73, I think, I just released a song called Living on Easy Street, Gay Connotations. <laughs> Saturday night, I'm feeling fine. I'm with my boyfriend and he's on my living. We are living on easy street. And I'm with my boyfriend and living on easy street. Yeah. A gay big band song. I'm sure there are other ones, but that's the only one I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, I don't think... Well, Molly obviously knew who it was, Molly Meldrum, because I was straight on to Countdown doing that one. A lot of people just thought, oh, Jeffrey's just singing about a friend who was a boy, which was okay. That sort of started it all for me way back then. You know, I've been trampling the stages around the world since then. There's still a lot of people that remember me from Countdown, but there's, you know, a couple of generations that wouldn't even know who I was. How would you describe your sexuality? Would you even put a label on it? A lot of media people say that I'm androgynous, which is probably pretty much it. Also, they think you're Annie Lennox. (laughs) Androgyny can be just a look, I think, can't it? In London, I was asexual for uh, 10 years. I just, I was so busy, you know, making records and being duffo that um, I forgot about my sex organs, you know. I I was just a newt. When you want to get on with your work, that side of things can get in the way. And sometimes a me party, although it sounds selfish, is the way to go. I think if you forget about the sexual drive I just got so busy that I was just enveloped by my career. Other people might view it as being selfish because all you do is thinking about you. That's true, I was. But I was so busy making albums and writing and recording with so many musicians, wonderful musicians overseas, that I did forget about the sex side of things and I just became like a eunuch almost. Could you explain, I like performers to explain this to people who are non-performers, the effect of being on the stage. Most people, they don't experience that. Well, for me, it's the ultimate feeling. I feel more comfortable and more at home on stage than anywhere else that I've ever, ever been. I figure that I've probably done more gigs in Australia than anybody, maybe apart from you. (laughs) When I was 16 and 17, I'm from Melbourne, I was flown up to Sydney and I was in a residency doing nine hours a day. We used to do uh, 12 until 6 in the uh, afternoon for uh, the GIs. I was very, very young, uh, the American sailors who dock here in Sydney. And then I'd do another three or four hours in the evening. It was ridiculous. I became really hardened to performing live. It just envelops your personality and your whole persona. And performing live is just part of what I do. It's like breathing. It's just a natural thing for me. Could you remember when you caught this bug? Was it at school? 
I was a very sick child when I was younger. I had uh, a terrible lung complaint that I'd inherited from my mum, which my mum passed away from. I missed a whole year of school with this shadow on my lung. I didn't even know what it was. When I snapped out of that, the doctors just told my parents, let Jeffrey run. And I ran and I ran and I ran and I took up every sport. I took up cricket, AFL, tennis, basketball, hockey, and I became a champion. I was just a weedy looking skinny little guy like I am now, but I became incredibly gifted at sport. And I still play sport in that competition sport now. When I was sick, I was uh, in bed for a year. I invented all these imaginary friends. And that's where my theatrical bug started. I started playing these different people in my head. And I made my parents, when I was about five or six, buy a ventriloquist doll. And that's when my performance thing started. And I, I remember being invited on uh, a children's television show in Melbourne when I was seven, being a ventriloquist. <laughs> and that was my first national performance as a ventriloquist. Is there a direct line between performing in sport and performing on stage? Yeah, I think it's about wanting and needing and adoring the attention. If you can imagine in cricket, when you're bowling, all eyes are focused on you as a bowler. When you're batting, all eyes are focused on you when you're batting. Although I don't, I don't consciously think about it like that, but it is a performance. And in fact, last season, because I was doing quite a bit of television, I had a new record out, all the opposition teams, I'd go out to bat and I'd start singing, let's dance. You know, the David Bowie <laughs> I remember having to tell my captain, can you speak to the opposition captain and tell him to stop taking the mickey out of me when I go out to play? Because yeah. I'm serious about my sport. They don't think I am, but I am. David Bowie and yourself in your time, you would have worn pleated cricket pants on stage anyway. I was a very, very well-dressed cricketer. I've always been into clothes. I love, I love clothes. And have you ever designed clothing and been involved in the fashion world? It would make sense. I did do some modelling when Cush was at the height of its career. I guess because, I, you know, I'm thin and, you know, models notoriously have to be thin, don't they? Oh, and, and by the way, he's still thin <laughs> and no, there's no heroin involved, OK? We checked that. I've been through the house. The sniffer dogs have been through. He's clean, people. Maynard's taken all my drugs. <laughs> Literally. I was doing a bit of modelling for Maynard magazines like Duke. Duke, yeah. Now that was a like Ram, it was about yeah. music, but it stretched into some other things. And Ram also, I, I was doing some modelling because I've always been known for having strange, fashionable stage attire, which I still have to this day. I'm constantly having new costumes made, but I was, in answer to your question, making and designing my own costumes way back with Kush. Mind you, a lot of the costumes were, it was like wearing next to nothing because they were just little leotard things that I could slip in and out of. Did your mum teach you to sew or any that sort of thing? I guess she might have. I don't know where I inherited the uh, the sewing gene, but I, I, I really enjoy doing it too. It's very cathartic. It was like writing the book. It, you get so engrossed in sewing, knitting and designing. It's, uh... A lot of people would know you from your more recent shows for doing your David Bowie shows. And I think it's important that people think you have the love of Bowie, but you are much more than that. Yeah, it's frustrating. You know, I've been lumbered with the Bowie thing. Although, look, if I was going to be lumbered with anything, I'd rather it be David Bowie than anybody else. I figure we've almost lived parallel lives. Uh, you know, the fact that he lived next door to me here for 10 years. And Did you ever get to have a conversation with him ever? Well, we had coffee. I was wandering down the street one day in Elizabeth Bay and these guys came up to me and they said, hey, you're that guy who sings up the road in a club called Round Midnight. Do you remember Round Midnight? Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. They said, oh, come and have a coffee with Dave. And I said, David, David Bowie, we're over here working, recording an album called with Tin Machine. Now, that was in the early 90s here. They recorded at EMI in, in the Castlereagh Street there. Did you know what to say to him at first? Because it's kind of hard when you meet your idols. 
wonderful and, you know, so eloquent and so knowledgeable, so well-read and so intelligent. Well, actually, he asked to meet me. The first time I met him was in London when I was performing over there. I was doing all these fashionable clubs. I was considered like, I was going to say an advanced punk. I think I went over there because originally I was attracted by the whole Sex Pistols and Clash thing, you know, the whole anarchy thing, because I was getting into so much trouble in Australia, being arrested on stage and stuff. We've seen all these headlines from the Sunday papers, that sex scandal with pop star. I love that kind of thing. And were they just blowing up stuff that was minute, like you'd have a clothing malfunction or someone thought they... Look, back in those days, apparently, if someone thought they saw your penis at a concert, they could ring the police. Could you imagine bothering the police with that now? <laughs> well, the size of mine, they would. <laughs> but with the size of your penis, it's more of a traffic violation, really, and a danger to shipping. Exactly. Watch out out there. They must have had a lot of slow news days. And as a result of all these little minor scandals, as you said, I would end up on a current affair with Mike Willisey on national television, defending my honour. And quite often I was so embarrassed, I thought, fucking hell, this is such a minor thing. All of a sudden it's a huge news story. I remember when I was on stage with, uh, with Cush and we performed this song I wrote called Satanic Deity about a priest being possessed. And I started the song doing a sermon and, and I had a Bible. And I started getting angry and ripping up the Bible and such. And I shouldn't have done it, I know. But all of a sudden, the headline was the priest who rips up Bibles. And then I I had to go and have a debate on the current affair with a leading member of uh, some church. And he just hacked into me. I felt like such a tool, you know. I had no defence because I was in the wrong. He kept saying, oh, do you remember what happened to Graham Bond and all these rock stars from England who who were satanic worshippers? They all ended up suiciding or being killed. And I said, oh, I don't want that to happen, you know, and I was only about 18. You were doing it in a theatrical way. You you weren't going, this is the word of the Lord, follow Satan, that kind of thing. It was on stage. It was a theatrical thing, as Alice Cooper would have been doing at the time. It just happened that upstairs in the dressing room, there was a, a Gideon's Bible, and I thought I'd, I'd take it down. Unfortunately, current affair were there and they were filming the, 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 the gig. The naughtiness just gets into you on stage, doesn't it, sometimes? And you end up ad-libbing physically, sometimes to your own publicity deprimate. <laughs> exactly. I would say I'm mischievous. Mischievous Jeff Duff. Yeah. Nothing I've done has ever harmed anybody the only thing it has harmed is maybe it's dented my pride and my <laughs> dignity, and I don't really care about that anyway, you know. Have you got a new album coming out to coincide with the book? We've got an album called Her Majesty Requests. It's a companion piece to the album, and it has, uh, you know, it's like a best of, I suppose, going right back into Easy Street, actually. that We've Listen to those beautiful birds. I know. This Morton Bay fig that, that's outside our in the park out front of Jeff's flat, and we're, about, we're five storeys up here beautifully looking over that. It is just a lovely winter's day, isn't See it? See my friends out there? What are they? They're lorikeets. That's Michael and that's Samantha. They're lovers. We'll just have a bit of a noise from... What are their names again? Samantha and Michael. How do you balance the wild lifestyle on stage or as people perceive it to be live, because touring is actually quite hard work, as anyone will tell you, with this beautiful, quiet little flat here you have on your own. Oh, I love it. You're fortunate to be invited here. Not many people come here. Yes, white, is yeah. the, white is the colour here. I love the idea of it being white. It's just sort of clean. and. I want to ask why you came back from England, because to me, I don't see why you couldn't have continued in England, because they have a bigger scene there you could have been a part of. Why did you come back, Jeff? Gee, a lot of people ask me that. I don't know. Like, after 10 years, I thought I'd just come back and just check up on the family that remembered me, say hello, and I came back just, I said to the record company, I'll be back in two weeks. I thought that was long enough to come back after 10 years. 
and I'm still here. Although, you know, I've been back and forth since. I didn't go back to Melbourne where I lived and where I was born. I came back to Sydney and I landed in Elizabeth Bay where I am now and I haven't moved. It's just so beautiful here. I mean, look. It is just lovely here. I've got to say, how many years have you been here in this little one-bedroom flat? I've been here 20 years. We do like to have uh, lifestyle tips on the Planet Maynard podcast from time to time. What is the secret to keeping a one-bedroom flat so tidy, Jeff? Living on your own. I think if you have a partner, I think it's it's a compromise and it's difficult. I love being tidy and clean and neat. And Have you written or performed a song about living on your own and being like that at all? Yeah, many songs. This would be considered a mansion in London. I lived in Camden Town in London for a long time. And oh, yeah, great place. All the Madness guys came from there. A bit of the two-tone scene yeah. was going on there, yeah. And Nick Cave. I, actually, I arrived, Nick Cave and I arrived together in 78, I think, in, in London. That's where all the groovy clubs were, Dingwalls and the Electric Ballroom. And that's where I first saw Sid Vicious perform live at the Electric Ballroom in 79, I think it was. You've been to some great nightclubs. Did you actually go to the, the famous New Romantic nightclub? That was the Steve Strange, yeah. Blitz. Yeah, yeah, I, I was a resident there, the Blitz Club. That was the New Romantic Club. Steve Strange, who's no longer with us, who was uh, Visage, yeah. Fade to Grey. He ran that. What was that like? The Blitz was fantastic. And, of course, I, I wore makeup every day. I mean, I still wear makeup most days now. Going to Blitz was just like, for me, the most comfortable situation because all the, uh, the audience, they all dressed up, and particularly the guys, probably as much as the women. The Blitz Club was a favourite for David Bowie and Gary Newman, Spando Ballet, Duran Duran. <laughs> They'd all turn up there and uh, the DJs were the stars. Actually, Even though I was performing live, the DJs were playing the new romantic music of the day. And, mm, and of course, like that was kind of pre-beat mixing to a certain extent. And also the music wasn't to be beat mixed. Each track stood on its own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like best of radio show there. The three, four minute song, that's what they wanted to hear. They didn't cross fade into two or three tracks in a yeah. row. What was your favourite new romantic track of the time? Nick Kershaw and Howard Jones. <laughs> Wouldn't it be good, Maybe. that one? that song. Howard Jones had the mime artist on stage, which you would have appreciated. Yeah, yeah. I like little bits of Spando Ballet and Duran Duran. I did a show with uh, Duran Duran at Wembley, actually. It's funny, when I think about the New Romantic period, it seemed to come and go so quickly. By the time we were aware of it here, it might have actually gone there as well. Oh, that's the other thing. There was the this power pop thing, which was Elvis Costello. <laughs> That happened just before the new romantic thing. So when I was living in London, every morning I'd wake up and I'd think, gee, I wonder what music trend is going to happen today. And my whole 
life, I've never ever compromised who I am. I dress the way I want to dress. And I remember the record company at the time saying, Jeffrey, you have to remember the way you look compared to a lot of the local Sydney people. You stand out, you know, and some people are going to be threatened by the way you look. So I remember a record company boss saying to me, check yourself in the mirror before you leave your front door. (laughs) This explains everything, your book. What do you think people might learn from that that they just never expected to read in a book about you? Pretty much what they see on stage is what they, what they're going to read. Although you know, there's been a lot of scandals and affairs and arrests and things that have been associated with me that people probably don't know about, but they'll read about it in a book. To me, they've all been part of being the Duffo character, an extension of being on stage. The things that I do off stage, even playing cricket and tennis, are an extension of what I do on stage. You know, it's all about performance. And let's end with a performance of yours. You've mentioned that you've got a companion CD for all this. Is your stuff available on iTunes as well? Yeah, everything's on iTunes. All of my back catalogue, the whole 30 albums, are on laneywaymusic.com.au. So everything's available for download on Laneway Music. Look, I can see your upcoming gigs here on, on a very, very beautifully set out whiteboard. I can see stuff for December. You've got Lazotte's in Newcastle on the 2nd of December, Friday, 2nd of December. Yeah, yeah, I do Lazotte's. And you've got the Mo Awards coming up as well in August. There's a few things going on. I'm doing the Enmore on the 18th of, of June. Because the Bowie thing is so popular since his passing, I've got two particular Bowie shows, one called Bowie Unzipped and the other one called Ziggy Unzipped Thing. We just got back from Queensland yesterday. That's touring all the time. Why is the hardest David Bowie song for you to perform? Because it was the last song he ever recorded, we've been doing Lazarus. And the first time I did it, I must have done it just in the same week. I was booked to do a, a club in Sydney called Camelot. And I sang Lazarus. And I, I'd, my, I've dedicated my book to David Bowie, The Memory of David Bowie. And I, I read a little dedication before. I, and I said, look, I'd like to sing the, the last song David Bowie ever recorded. It's called Lazarus. I said, look, I don't think it's going to happen with David Bowie, but I'll sing the song. I just broke down and cried. I couldn't even finish the song in front of, you know, 300 people. It was... Ain't that just like me? That was the most difficult song to sing at that particular time. I mean... Has he got one that's vocally difficult to do? I don't think a lot of people realise what an incredible singer David Bowie was. He had a rich baritone and he had a, a really lovely sweet tenor. Life on Mars, that's a very rangy. That covers a couple of octaves. But the film is a sad thing for For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eyes of fools As they ask her to focus on singers Fighting in the dance hall Oh man, look at those cavemen go What about the whole My Way connection with that song? Look, he openly admits to ripping off the Sonata song My Way when he wrote Life on Mars. It is, it's exactly the same chord progression at the at the top there.
Way was, it wasn't called My Way. When the music was written, they asked for lyricists to write lyrics for it. And he wrote a soppy love song, which uh, it ended up going to... Um, Is it Paul Anker? Paul Anker, that's right. You've got a good recall on all this information. So David Bowie's thing was thrown to the side. But in saying that, David Bowie ended up deriving life on Mars from what he'd learned about the song My Way. So he did benefit from My Way. And do you think that one is one of the more difficult ones to try and perform? I think in the, in the original key, it's probably the most difficult song to sing. Oh, hang on, now give us a bit of inside information here. The key you normally sing in it is not the one no, that... Ah. I sing it in C, which is probably an octave below the original key. great version you did of that. That's got that amazing clip with the makeup with you, hasn't it? With David Bowie's makeup artist. See, there are so many links to my career with David Bowie. David Bowie's makeup artist wanted to do my makeup. He did this this makeup for Walk on the Wild Side when I first came back to Australia. I received an advance from Warner Chapel, the publishers, which was, I think, $10,000. And I thought, well, I'm going to spend that on a video. We booked a studio for an hour. We ended up doing four different versions of the makeup of uh, Walk on the Wild Side, which uh, Richard Shara did the makeup on. There'll be a link to that in the show notes, so follow that to YouTube and have a look at that because it is a great film clip. Seeing that one night, I'm rage. I was very confused by it. That's what we love about you, Jeff, because you thrill us and you confuse us and you scandalise us all at the same time. Yes, I think confusion is a good <laughs> choice of words because I confuse myself sometimes. I think sometimes when I'm doing the shows, the, ba- the band will come into the dressing room. I always have a separate dressing room because I've got so many clothes. <laughs> I have eight costume changes in the Bowie show. They always walk in and they say, are you serious? Are you going on like that? And I say, yeah, it's just... What I do. It's a bloody Bowie show. Going to go on in a, t-shirt, a white T-shirt and 501s. Well, I had to start dressing the band because they'd come on in jeans and T-shirt. And I said, oh, look, no. it's a Bowie show, man. You have to dress up, you know. So a lot of them don't have suitable clothing, so I ended up dressing them. In the end, I ended up... I think I said they should all wear ponchos. Well, I did something similar. In the end, I realised if I leave it to their own devices, I'll just end up looking like Wharfies. And, you know, it looks ridiculous, me dressing in leotards and wings and angel wings and stuff and them in jeans and T-shirts. So I sent over to America and I ended up buying astronaut suits from NASA for them. This is a show I've really got to see. And what song would you like us to finish off with from your new CD? Well, the title track of my last album is called Walking on Eggshells, and I, I really like that one, so you can maybe finish off with that one. Is that about you creeping around here late at night, being careful of your own safety, or is it a story about you on stage not wanting to end up on a current affair again? Uh, well, a little bit of everything. I think it's about relationship. You know, you're with a lover or a partner or even a friend, and there are some areas of conversation that you can't encroach upon because you know they're going to flip out. We've also been there. Yeah, so you have to literally walk on eggshells. Otherwise, things are going to get out of control. And where can we find you 
online. There's a fan site called jeffduffstuff.com, done from a fan in Tasmania. My own official website is jeffduff.com. And then there's the Bowie one, which is bowieunzip.com.au. Thank you very much, Jeff Duff. See you at the end more and see you on stage for a long time to come. Thank you very much, man. It's been a pleasure. You treat your dog better than you treat me. Sleeps like a log. Then he wants to eat me. You treat your dog better than you treat me. You treat me bad. It's such a drag. Yeah.
<laughs> on maynard.com.au. AU! Hey,